This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. And we are back. This is Drew Taylor. I should tell everyone that. Joined, as always, by Charles Hood. Hello. We are back with an episode from the archives, Charles. Yes. A a lost gem. Uh, And we are so excited to bring this one to you because this is one of— And it's no longer lost. It's not lost. It's no longer lost. No. We we found it. It's here for you to to enjoy and listen to. It is. And and, and also, you know, with our old—bringing back our back catalog, if you notice, we also are bringing back Kevin Blumenfeld's legally dissimilar— Light the fuse theme. So with these old episodes, when you hear them, you'll hear uh, you know a nice throwback to Kevin Blumenfeld's original Light the Fuse theme, which is legally dissimilar from the Mission Impossible theme. Uh, yeah, it cleared in the eyes of Paramount and and God above, it is legally dissimilar. <laughs> uh, this is I I think I speak for both of us. One of our favorite interviews ever. Yes, it's just delightful, and I hope you guys love it as much as we do. We are talking this week to Brian De Palma and Susan Lehman, who is his creative and romantic partner. They wrote a book together called Are Snakes Necessary that Charles and myself both read and adored. And so we were so thrilled to kind of grab them while they were promoting that book and talk about everything else. And you will hear in the interview as we slowly charm our way into De Palma's heart, I think. (laughs) Would you say that's that's what happened? Yeah. Yes, I would. Yeah. And then this was recorded back in uh, I think June 2021. And this coincided with the first Mission Impossible movie's 25th anniversary, which was in 2021. So that was really amazing to talk to him around that time. And, uh, you know, yeah, get get the book if you're a De Palma fan, because you're going to love it. Uh, Are snakes necessary? Yeah, it is. It is basically a De Palma movie in book form. Twists, yeah. turns, weird sex. It's got it all. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's just, we're just so happy to bring this interview back. I mean, just hearing that amazing George Lucas story about how he contributed to the first Mission Impossible is still one of my favorite things that we ever unearthed. It's just so cool. And uh, we get into so many of uh, De Palma's movies from his storied career. So it's just so great to get into that. And also, uh, one of our favorite things, I believe we get another uh, dog interruption in here, which is always welcome on our show. Oh, yes. And again, you know, I feel like we were sort of the dog. As well. He sort of seems annoyed by the dog, but you can tell that he loves the dog. And I feel like that by the end of this episode, we achieved the same status. So, okay. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think we quite made it to the level of the dog, but maybe we're like the neighbor's dog or something. Yeah, but we that's, the, that's always what we aspire to be. Yes. Dog worthy. And Charles, I want to remind people that they can watch all six of the original Mission Impossible movies, including Brian De Palma's original masterpiece right now on Paramount+. Plus. And also that you can buy Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning from your favorite digital provider as well as on physical media. And that would be DVD, Blu-ray, and 4K Ultra HD disc, which you and I have and love that release. So go get it. It's great. So let's get into Brian De Palma. 
Charles had a great question about the title of the book he wanted to ask. Yeah, I did. Uh, so, Are Snakes Necessary? Is that a reference to the Preston Sturges movie, The Lady Eve? Because he's, you know, Henry Fonda's reading the book. And can you, well, I'd love to hear what the reasoning behind that was. It's a good title. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, the title works really well for this story. I'm just, it, are you a fan? Are you a big fan of that movie? Or was it just literally you just saw that title and liked it and thought it fit? I've seen all those Preston Sturgis movies. And that's like the first shot he's reading this book on a deck chair on a yacht. The, the title made me laugh. And I went, all right, let's call the book that. <laughs> well, do we have another title ever? No. No. Okay. <laughs> well, I was going to ask if this was ever you know, conceived as a movie, but it sounds like it was always a book. Well, <laughs> you write a lot of scripts that never get done. So you got a lot of ideas that are sitting on a shelf somewhere or in a computer. And you say, well, this movie never got made, but maybe we can use this idea in a book. And that's sort of how it evolved. Okay. And what was the collaborative process like? A lot of fun. Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. I would basically write some stuff and send it off to Susan, and she would rewrite it and send it back to me. Brian, as you can imagine, has a very visual imagination and a great eye for structure. And so he put down the tent poles, and then we'd send it back and forth. And we, um, we kind of played a game, which was send it back and forth and see if you can amuse the other person more than you were amused. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have an ending from the start? No, um, we were we were a couple of pages short. So, <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean a couple of pages short? <laughs> As I recall, we wrote this sometime ago, and. <laughs> I think there's a whole section that we decided to add on after we'd sort of mapped everything out. Okay. Sounds good to me. (laughs) (laughs) Was it the whole Paris section or something? Or do you mean, because it's very much an ensemble or was it, was it like one of the characters that you were following? Well, we had some broad ideas. It's it's kind of attention to detail that makes Brian the master. Or, you know, we had the political story. And then when we got the DiCarlo character involved, then we got into her doing the column. And I think the, very, the final revenge, I think we took the revenge up a notch there at the end. Okay. What was the biggest challenge of, of writing together? Or, or, or I guess writing a novel, your first novel in general? Well, as you can imagine, we had a lot of time (laughs) together, and it sort of fills out the day, (laughs) because I sort of wake up very early in the morning, have all kinds of ideas, and I sort of go to to the computer and write them down, and uh, then I sort of confer with Susan, and sometimes I'm either developing a screenplay, but then... I had all these other ideas that, from the other screenplays. And, and it's a kind of unique collaboration because Susan kind of fits into the things I don't have. You know, I'm, you know, a visual storyteller and blah, 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 blah. 
And uh, she's able to, you know, give the characters meat on the bone. You know, in movies, you just say he, she, the reporter. You know, you're very sketching things in because when the actors come in, they give the body to the character. But Susan did a lot of this, uh, filling in the characters and their backstories. Well, we're—I mean, the book came out a year ago. We're—we're we're nearing the paperback release. Is there going to be a follow-up? Are there going to be more of these books? Many, many more. Yes, we, in our confinement, came <laughs> up with another idea for a book, and we've been working on that for quite a while. So it's finished. Yes, it's finished. <laughs> That's great. But our public calls out to us. We will release it. <laughs> well, we'd love to see that for sure. I hope that happens. Yeah, we're calling out for it. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm interested to know the the book is, it feels so much like a Brian De Palma movie, but also has more, it feels like a, a lot of your movies are so like, you know, uh, laser focused in the narrative of, you know, a singular character or just a couple of characters. This is much more of an ensemble it almost it's like a it's like a Brian De Palma movie by way of like Robert Altman almost with all these different characters. Was that always to be the Robert Altman character in this portrayal? <laughs> <laughs> Was that always the idea, and or did it start? You know, I know a lot of your movies and, and it's like sequences are, are are where you start from and then build around. Was it was it was it more like that, or was you know how did the whole thing begin for you? What happens when you can't answer these questions? You ask me. Okay. <laughs> okay. So Brian had a number of ideas, and there, the book is built around set pieces that are easily recognizable as trademark De Palma moments. The Eiffel Tower is one, and there are others. Um, and so I think Brian plots things. He's a really good um, plotter. Like He knows exactly how things are going to be structured and how different scenes are going to speak to other ones. So I think we started with his basic idea, structural idea, and then we we played around with it a lot. Is that accurate? You have to explain played around. (laughs) Well, we made up new characters and we complicated their stories and we, you know, twisted them out, twisted their pathways to one another. And had many laughs doing it. (laughs) Susan, would you agree with the laughs part? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, writing with somebody is takes all the, lo- especially if to somebody's Brian, takes all the loneliness of writing alone mm-hmm. and that and replaces it with, you know, a sense of mischief and play. Right. I really recommend it. You have the right partner. <laughs> Were any of these set pieces left over from projects that you couldn't either fit into projects that were already completed or, you know, from abandoned projects as well? Boy, that's hard to answer. I'm trying I to think, think back. Brian operates with a, a ragtag bag of tricks and ideas. I mean, he's, he's always working. He has a million ideas. There's a treasure trove of unproduced scripts, and some are filled with good ideas, and some probably are filled with less good ideas. They're all full <laughs> with great ideas. <laughs> Did you send any early drafts or... or- run any of the ideas by your your buddy and neighbor david Kep? no not really i think we sent them we, we yeah because we, he read the book and gave us a quote yes only when we were finished okay basically okay 
Brian is very big on, here's a trade secret. He's very big on don't show your work to anybody until it's finished. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. But you're, you famously have chimed in on other people's work in progresses. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, but you uh, really heckled Lucas on uh, <laughs> using the force in that early Star Wars screening. Um. Will we never live down this meeting <laughs> over the first screening of Star Wars? Everybody's, I mean, when I talked to everybody that was involved in that meeting, everyone has a different version of what happened. Well, give your version. Yeah. But my version, I mean, my version is pretty close. I was just watching Stephen's uh, the biography they did of Stephen, and he, he related what he how he saw it. Everybody... You know, they always portray me as the guy that says the worst thing that drives everybody crazy. But if you're going to show me something, I'm going to tell you what I think about it. Why am I there unless I'm going to give an honest appraisal of what I've seen? And in this case, you know, the fact that Stephen says that only he saw the possibilities of Star Wars, that's not really true. We all saw it as a terrific thing that George had done. And we were well aware of where the special effects weren't there and how they had cut in all these planes from other movies to be things that they were supposed to be, you know, the ships and stuff like that. But I did make a joke about the force. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us us what your opinion of the force was. I just thought the idea of the force is like, you know, the force, I would say, but I kept repeating it, you know, like, it doesn't seem like a great name for this kind of spiritual guidance, the force. <laughs> so needless to say, I had a lot to say about the force, which obviously I was terribly wrong about. But the other thing was that no one knew what was, you know, you know, the movie starts in chapter three, we're in a world nobody's ever knows anything about he's got all these funny names for people and i said george you've got to set this up somehow like those crawls in the uh, flash gordon movies where you you know uh, but george had that idea but it was all gobbledygook basically so i and jay cox went over the crawl and basically uh, rewrote it right so it made some sense and uh, that was our contribution but, I mean, I said some things very direct to my director friends about their movies that went on to be extremely successful. Sometimes I was right. Sometimes I was wrong. They did the same for my movies. I mean, when, I think when George saw Mission Impossible, you know, he said, there's no setup to this thing. You've got to set this thing up. You know, you got to set, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, and you're going to do that. You got to have that scene where they're all sitting around the table and everybody gets their instructions about what's going to happen. In the beginning, we had this very strange scene. I know it's hard for me to remember now, but with Voight and somehow the jealous thing with the wife and Tom. And, and then we got into the first mission. And when George showed the movie, it's the first thing he said, what are these people doing? You know, they're, you know, this is Mission Impossible. It's a group of guys going to do something. So you've got to get them all around a table and tell the audience what they're supposed to do. And that's what we did. We went back and reshot it. So that was this example of, you know, us helping each other. 
Wow. And so is that that scene with John Voight at the head of the table and Kristen Scott Thomas is off to the side, was she not able to come back for scheduling? Because it kind of seems like she was sort of isolated in a corner. Correct. Astute. Astute of cinema. That, in fact, Kristen could not come. So I had to shoot her over to the side and we doubled her in the master shot with her back to the window. <laughs> wow. I can't, I can't. I don't know if I can take credit. I think someone else pointed that out before me. But Go ahead. Take credit. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, Brian, but we've done like over 150 episodes on the Mission Impossible franchise and talked to many of your collaborators on the first movie. And they told us everything. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so we were wondering, you know, that's the 25th anniversary now. And you, you had an interesting sort of history with writers on this one, too, which is why I'm sort of I'm glad Susan's here to, to hear about your relationship with other writers. But no, I've heard this before. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was that? I mean, did you use anything from that original Cats and Hyuk uh, draft of the movie or was that just which draft are you talking about? <laughs> Supposedly there was a draft that uh, Willard and Gloria Katz did. Correct. And and did you end up using anything from that? Was that was so, the, the what yeah. happened was Sidney Pollock worked with them originally. He worked on a year on a draft of was all set in the Midwest. There was a storm. I don't even remember what it was. But they Tom was unhappy with it. And uh when uh the head of CAA said to me, Would you be interested in doing Mission Impossible? with Tom Cruise. And I said, you bet. And they sent me off to because Sidney wanted to do Sabrina. He wanted to get out of the Mission Impossible situation because it wasn't going well. So Sidney went on to Sabrina and they plugged me into Mission Impossible. So I proceeded to work with the Pikes, who I knew way back from, you know, working with, you know, George many years ago, and we worked on a version still all set in the United States. I think the, and I don't quite remember what the mission was, but it had something to do with a storm. And I knew Tom was not going to like this, but I, I was forced to go through another draft of this thing where everybody was looking around for new writers to start all over again. And then they had, uh, Paramount had a commitment to uh, Zalian, and Zalian and I went off to his office. We smoked a lot of cigarettes. I think we ate a lot of pie, ate a lot of popcorn. <laughs> and we worked for a couple of weeks and we worked out the 10 page treatment of what ultimately became the basis for Mission Impossible. But then Zalian had other things he wanted to do. So he bailed out. And then I ran into David who was about to do a remake of something. And I said, don't do that. Come over. Let's do Mission Impossible. So he said, great. So I handed David this 10-page treatment, and he and I worked out the initial script for Mission Impossible. Okay. That's act number one. <laughs> act number two is I have to, I'm trying to convince John. He's, you know, all Paramount wanted to do was make Mission Impossible. To get Tom Cruise into Mission Impossible is all they cared about. What the script was, who cares, as long as Tom is in Mission Impossible. And Tom was always having problems with the characters or something. And I said, Tom, you got to go in and tell Sherry that you're going to make this movie or, you know, uh, we're going nowhere. 
So ultimately, Tom said, okay, we're going to make this script. And everybody said, good, we have a go picture. We're going to London. We're starting to build all the sets. But I got a call the next day, and it was from uh, Paula Wagner. And she said, the good news is we're all go. The bad news, news is you have to fire David Kep." I said, what? Because well, Tom wants to bring on Bob Town. Fired David Kep. <laughs> David's never been fired in his life. He's an old friend of mine. And I said, you got to be kidding. He said, no, that's what Tom wants to do. So I had to call up Dave. I said, Dave, <laughs> the good news is it's a go. The bad news is you're fired. Oh. So what I did was keep David in the loop, let him know what we were doing when we were starting to go into production. And town was up in the hotel for six weeks writing God knows what. Tom and I used to come in from rehearsals and, and, and act out these scenes in front of him. And he would work some more and smoke a few more cigars. And Are there any tapes of that? Uh, I, I of don't you think and Tom so. acting out the scenes? <laughs> Finally, when he had to submit a script, the new script, Paula was appalled. I mean, it, it just didn't work at all. So I said, you've got to bring David Cap back on and we have to take some of the good stuff that uh, some of the good scenes the town done. And we, so what, what town did, he rewrote the whole script. That's not what needed to be done. The, the characters had to be fleshed out a little bit. And there have to be some clever lines. That's what he did. And then I brought David back on. I made them pay him a lot of money. And for two weeks, he took what Towns had done and integrated into his script. And that became the script we shot with, of course, until the famous story about pulling off masks in the boxcar, which we had a big fight over that. And I said, I got this big helicopter chase of the tunnel. Him on the train, the void on the helicopter. And then town looks at me and says, oh, one of those, you know, helicopter is going into a tunnel sequence. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, maybe you're right. Let's do pulling off masks in the box bar. That's how we'll wrap it up. Great. And I left it at that. I walked out of the room and Tom came around and thought that maybe the helicopter thing in the end would be better than the pulling the masks off in the boxcar as a finale. So how much of the town stuff ultimately made it in, would you say? Not much? There were some good lines. There's some good town lines in there, but... Basically, it's it's David's script. Okay, and, and I was very disappointed with Town. With what, you know, he has such a great reputation. I was very disappointed in what he did. And then look what he did to the next Mission Impossible. It's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. That's that is the no good. <laughs> <laughs> he was riffing on Hitchcock, though. I mean, did you ha did you have any sympathy in that? What you mean in the the one he did after mine? Yeah, it's yeah, kind it of like, notorious. It's basically just notorious. Yeah, I know. I, I heard that idea so many times. Let's do notorious, bloody, bloody, blah, and that's what he did, and it was not good. <laughs> Wait, when you say you heard that idea so many times, do you mean Tom Cruise was saying to you, "Let's do notorious"? No, no. This was an idea the town had about doing it, doing a kind of the notorious element. Oh, okay. We all love notorious, but. 
It didn't no. work for Mission Impossible, as no. you probably observed. Yeah. We'll be back with more from Brian De Palma and Susan Lehman after the break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know the sequence in the uh, the diner with with John Voight when he's revealed to be alive, and uh, Tom Cruise is seeing the truth while John Voight lies. You know, I think Paul Hirsch had some hilarious comments about how critics were dumbed down from Twister coming out a couple weeks before <laughs> he told us about that. But uh, I'm wondering where that that sequence is so brilliant, and I just love it so much. I'm wondering when when did that come about? Was that with Kep, or was that you know when when in the process? Now you're getting into an area that I don't quite remember. I remember the way I shot it and, and, I, and the idea of, I think it must have come from, from me and David because I had this idea that Void should be saying one thing and Tom should be thinking what the truth was. And then, you know, I laid out the sequence like that. But I think that's something we had right in the beginning of the script. I guess you could check in the versions David has on his website. Yes. The initial script and then how it changed in the final. I think version. those are all included in the De Palma archive, by the way. <laughs> no, they're in the David Kep archive. <laughs> in one of his earlier scripts, there was a great set piece with a, a military wedding where, you know, Ethan is tricking uh, Kittredge by showing up and he, he does a quick change of his outfit to like fit in with this whole military wedding that comes out of the church. Do you recall that? No. <laughs> we had a great sequence where they got one of the members. I think it was... Uh, Thing Rames? Was it Bing? I think it was Bing where he's in prison and they break him out in prison. We had a great sequence with a breaking him out of prison in which they give him a shot. So he looks like he's dead. And then they bring him up to the roof and they're going to incinerate him. And then the helicopter arrives and, and saves, saves Ving, you know, from being incinerated. And he becomes, otherwise we had the, you know, this, the seven samurai recruiting the group. Right. We kind of lost all that. We just, we just stuck them all in the train and they were all there, but we had, sequences for each one where they were recruited but that was never filmed was it no right though i laid out that sequence of the escape from prison we had we were even built starting to build a set for that before oh. we said oh, this is too much with too expensive you know we got to cut this down wow 
but you 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 seem to have had a relatively good time on this movie, all things considered. Correct. A good time. <laughs> Maybe hindsight is making it. Yeah, I've I've heard you talk very warmly about the movie recently. I don't know if that if maybe time has colored your perception of it, but a good time. <laughs> you made a you made a comment recently about how Carlito's Way and Mission Impossible might be. I forget the exact phrasing that you said, but it was something about you being at the top of your game. You had the the biggest you know sandbox to play in, and I had all the you know all the you know, great things that you have when you make a big studio movie. You know, all the great technicians, all the great, all a lot of money, you know, big stars. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you can make something extraordinary. But it was like after it was over, I said, get me out of here. <laughs> Talk about stress in order to get the thing done. Right. Well, you've, you've flirted with sequels or prequels to Untouchables and... Scarface in the past. Did you ever f- feel like you wanted to return to Mission Impossible? And what was it about those projects that sort of were more tempting than another Mission Impossible? Well, we did. Art Linson and I worked on a prequel to The Untouchables, but it was a whole different story. It's, it's not, you know, this continuation. These are all, it was all done with these characters who are a lot younger. Mission Impossible, I mean, once. Once is enough. <laughs> That's what I always felt. I mean, when Tom asked me to do the next one, I said, are you kidding? <laughs> one of these is enough. <laughs> I mean, the fact that he goes on making them, it's like, ay <laughs> Guys, love them all. You've been watching each one with new excitement. <laughs> yes, it's true. Yeah, have you been? So, have you watched the rest of them? Well, I'm trying to remember. I'm trying. I like the. I guess the third one was pretty good, but that's because it had Philip Seymour Hoffman in it. Yeah, he was fantastic. And then the rest of them just all blur. Please, no more motorcycles. And what about the the sequence on Dubai in Dubai on the the Burj Khalifa? You see that sequence? Is that the, there's one where he's running over roofs that goes on forever? When's that? <laughs> That was the most recent one. That was Fallout. Stop running, Tom. (laughs) He can't. He cannot stop running. Never. He'll never stop. Stop stop running. (laughs) Get another rooftop to run across. Um, I wanted to ask you about the the music. There was obviously, you know, Paul Hirsch told us the story of Whoa, whoa. Alan Silvestri. And- whoa, easy. <laughs> You're getting attacked by your dog, it looks like. By the dog. <laughs> so the, the music, uh, obviously, you know, Alan Silvestri was on and then was taken off. And then Danny Elfman came on. And you've worked with so many incredible composers in your career. I would love to hear how that whole process went down. And then also would love to know why never again with Elfman, because the two of you seem like a match made in heaven. Well, you know, the great composers, the problem is, you know, they're not always available because they're working all the time. With Alan, it was just, we were recording and it just didn't work. And, you know, Tom was very unhappy with it. And I was, you know, I'm very used to you know, working with composers and going in and changing this and moving this around. And it just, there was no sort of chemistry between Alan and I. And, uh, and when we saw that, when we saw that uh, 
Danny was available, we immediately snapped him up. And I, as Paul, I, I know has detail uh, explained to you. I mean, I literally spent, you know, four weeks sitting next to him going over every cue in Mission Impossible in order to get us ready to, to record in, a, uh, in four weeks. Of, and he, he did an amazing job. So you wanted to work with him again? Who? Danny. Oh, of course. I mean, yeah. I've worked with all the great composers. I've missed a few, but, you know, I started with Bernard Herrmann, so. <laughs> Not too shabby. Yeah, you can't, you can't start any better, basically. There was a De Palma retrospective in France, and they started with Casualties of War. And when Brian went on stage, he was crying. Yeah, he said, that, that, he said that score always makes me cry. So I'm yeah. of an audience of thousands of people standing up and clapping. Brian is wiping the tears oh. off. Is that your favorite score? Yeah, it's a great score. It's one of the greatest scores. Yeah. And the Mission is also a great score. It is. It is. And I think Alan Silvestri used that music he wrote for your movie for another movie. Oh, really? That, yeah. Eraser, this the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. I don't think it's something maybe that you'd never saw. <laughs> I have to watch that and see if I can remember what it... Yeah, let us know if that's true. There was... Uh, originally, there was a train sequence for The Untouchables before the, you know, Odessa Steps famous sequence. There was a... a I think that David Mamet wrote... We actually found the pages of this original train chase. Was that what was the reason for for not doing that? And then was that kind of carried over into mission? Well, the reason was we couldn't afford it. I mean, you know, the studio said no. You know, you, trains, period, trains, a train chase, forget it. And then Art went to meet with uh, Mamet to try him to write, get him to write something out. And Mamet was just starting to shoot his first movie, and he said, "Go away." <laughs> so Art had flown all the way to meet Mammoth somewhere where we were shooting, and Mammoth, in his usual cordial manner, said, "Go away! <laughs> Can't be bothered with this." So I said, well, "Look, it's about getting the accountant." And needless to say, I, you know, the baby carriage on the steps sort of was the thing that started me thinking about having the shootout in the uh, train station. And I sent Eric Schwab around. I said, get me a staircase. And then we literally went in and shot like, I think, six nights. And I, I just made it up as we were there. Were there. Were, there just, were there no script pages? No. I just made it up, basically. <laughs> wow. I don't know if we wrote anything down. I don't remember. But I just remember. And we sort of did it in sequence. So it was easy to... Uh, Wait, you mean you just had a carriage in the steps and no script? No, I had the, you know, the Odessa steps in my mind. I, and then I had, you know, Ellie in the midst of, you know, a baby carriage going down the steps and a gun play going back and forth. That was the basic idea. So did you have storyboards or anything or was it just just going as just shot by shot, just build it out yourself? I just did it. Wow. You know, because what's great about that sequence is that, you know, I'm always talking about you have to lay out the choreography. Everybody has to know where things are before you start shooting people. And uh, the staircase is such a, you know, it's, a, it's like a football field or something. You know where everything is. The clock's up there. The steps go down here. People come from the outside into the station from here. 
What's important is you have to take a tremendous amount of time and keep the audience engaged of setting up the choreography. And of course, the master of this is uh, Hitchcock in the crop duster scene, where you see him very carefully lay out the choreography in the slowest of ways, but you, he keeps you entertained enough so you hang in there with him. And that's the same really with that Odessa Step sequence. I might add when David Mamet saw the movie, as soon as the sequence started, he walked out of the screening room. Really? <laughs> and when the sequence was over, he returned. Oh, God. Wow. First, you have that crazy baby carriage on the step sequence, which I see, uh, I, as far as he's concerned, I seem to have ruined his vision. Right. And what is the scene that's always included in every kind of montage of your kind of greatest hits? That baby carriage sequence. It must drive him crazy. <laughs> um, that would be a hard thing to do. <laughs> do you remember, I don't want to use the word blackmail, but coercing <laughs> David Knoll into giving you an extra shot, visual John effect Noel. shot, John Knoll, to give him his VFX supervisor credit on the movie? <laughs> Say that again? John Knoll told us a story that you <laughs> said that he could have a credit. I believe it was visual effects supervisor. Only if he did an extra shot for you of of John Voight in the plane at the beginning of the movie. Do you remember this at all? No. Okay. <laughs> but I would believe John. Okay. Okay. Is that, is that something you would do? Are you kidding? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> you need the shot. <laughs> uh, did he work on Snake Eyes on the... On the... Yes. Okay. I've always been fascinated about that ending, and I'm so glad that you put some footage of it in the documentary. But, yeah, do you think that the lack of that ending hurt the movie, or what's your sort of feeling on it? My concept and David's concept was, this was this is like the Great Flood. I mean, when you're dealing with such a corrupt universe, the only way to deal with it is to a flood. you got to kill everybody. Yeah. And that was always the concept. But we discovered that audiences don't believe in God coming down and creating the flood. <laughs> when there's such rampant evil around. So then we had to come up with a different ending, which I don't think is as effective. But that's basically because our conception of how it should have ended, we were never able to do. And the audience would never accept, basically. Well, how dependent are you on those test audience responses? I mean, did you have anything like that in mission? And was it sort of freeing writing this book because you didn't have to, I mean, you had to show it. To, I mean, you and Susan talked about well, it. But. Yes, I mean, you're always dealing with the, that research group. And, uh, and believe me, in my history, I had all the movies you know, it had all the language, all the eroticism in them, and I'd be constantly fighting with these people that would, you know, pull the audience. And Because anything really excessive, an audience reacts very strongly to. And the studio, always with the studio, uh, when they would get kind of negative cards after a screening. Right. One reason that we started working on this book is because Brian had been involved um, in... Uh, HBO production of Paterno. 
And then they get, you know, a million notes and said, let's just write a book. It's much easier. You have to take these phone calls or read these crazy notes. Yeah, thousands of notes about Paterno. And so was that more more notes than you'd ever had before from, was it getting worse? Absolutely. You get piles of notes, you know, and uh, I said, I've had it, basically, you know, and I just walked away. Wow. Thank you, Lucia. back with more from Brian De Palma and Susan Lehman after the break. I mean, do you feel like do you feel like the medium of of fiction is sort of going to be your outlet for the next little while or or are you itching to to get back? Well, until I become senile, uh, one's mind tends to be working all the time, and I'm, you know, trying to make um, maybe one more movie, if possible, maybe another. And of course, writing books is, you know, a lot of fun uh, that uh, Susan and I do together. Right, Susan, do you have a favorite Brian De Palma movie? Yes, Casualties of War left me speechless. Wow, not the easiest watch. No, but it's. I think it's the least credited. You know, that, that's yeah. not the first movie most people say, but it, it has a power unlike anything I've ever seen. Yeah. Right. I'm assuming you would never be able to make something like that again. Well, I Redacted is sort of like a sort of spiritual. You'd make a movie like that. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of a, but, but, uh, but uh, that's a much uh, smaller scale, I would say, right? Like you would never be able to sell that to Columbia in 2021, probably. It's a whole different world now. Because you're dealing with the big streaming services. People seem to like, you know, things in six or seven parts, like serials. Right. You know, the, the, the two-hour movie is sort of based on a, the three-act play. But I, I think the culture has sort of lost sight of that. And uh, whether that format is going to remain, I wonder about. It's like the look of movies is changed quite a bit because of the digital uh, revolution. Right. You know, the beauty, you know, I keep on saying, why is there no beauty in cinema anymore? Because they don't light the way they used to. You know, when you're dealing with digital stuff, you just have to, you know, turn on a lamp, you know, and uh, it's, it's lit. And you can do really things really fast. But... You know, if you want something to be really beautiful, you have to take the time to light it correctly. And they just don't do that anymore. Very few directors do. Would you ever consider doing a miniseries? Does that interest you at all? Well, I am working on a series uh, based, uh, uh, Susan and I quite like a French village, uh, the, the French series, which, you know, is about uh, a village during uh, World War II. And the guy that produced and wrote that series, you know, when we were in France promoting our book, uh, had an idea of doing the same thing in America during the Civil War in one town. So we started to work on it and uh, we sort of got slowed down because of the virus. But no, we, you know, worked on a, I guess it's, it's a one, two, three... It's like a 10-part series. 
And uh, we, we worked on developing it and we were going to continue developing it once he uh, was able to come over here and work again with me. Oh, wow. It's about, um, he, Brian said it so quickly, but um, it's about a town that's occupied by the North and the South during the Civil War. And it follows the framework of this terrific French series, which is about a village in France that during the Nazi occupation. Oh, wow. Fabulous. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that the, the Arsenic's Necessary would make a great kind of six-part Netflix thing. Absolutely. That had occurred to me as well. <laughs> would you do it as a, as a miniseries or a TV show? Write the check. We'll be there. <laughs> Your last big kind of Hollywood production was a giant Disney movie based on a theme park attraction. Was that sort of it for you? What, what, what did you kind of take away from that experience? You're talking about Mission to Mars? Yes. <laughs> well, I came into that picture because... The other director left, the guy that did all the Johnny Depp pirate pictures. Oh, Gore Verbinski. Okay. Yeah, Gore Verbinski. He was doing it, but he had a budget of $130 million and they wouldn't make it for that. So they said, could I do it for like $110 million? I said, sure. And I'd never done a science fiction movie like that before. This whole thing sort of fascinated me. But making movies like that is an endless struggle with thousands of special effects shops, you know, getting the shots right and constantly dealing with the studio uh, because the shots are so expensive. And they're constantly saying, do you really need this? Do you really need that? And of course, the other problem is that the head of the studio changed. So the person that initiated the project isn't there. You know, the new regime not really cares about it that much. And you basically have to struggle through the whole thing and you don't get everything you would need in order to make it as effective as it could be. And that, that's when I said, I, I can't do this anymore. And I went and, and moved to Paris. Wow. Well, there are parts of that movie, uh, parts of those sets that are now in Walt Disney World, which I don't think, I don't picture you as someone who would visit Walt Disney World. But if you're ever down there, go, go to Epcot and you can see pieces of Mission to Mars there. You're kidding. No, in, in the queue for... And Sinise, Sinise recorded a pre-show for a ride uh, in his kind of Mission to Mars character. So, Oh, boy. Know. Yeah. That's something we can't miss, honey. <laughs> <laughs> Susan has been looking to get down to Orlando. I can see it in her eyes. So, yeah. yeah. Take the dogs to Orlando. Yeah, take the dogs to Orlando, please. Get the dogs and the cat into the van and let's go. <laughs> Uh, how important was your collaboration with Stephen Burham? Um, you know, he obviously shot so many of the movies we talked about today. He's a great cinematographer. I mean, he's fabulous. You know, he's retired now, right? Oh, wait, we're, we're trying to get a hold of him. We'd love to talk to him on the show. So, yeah, we haven't been able to find him. Paul Hirsch hasn't gotten us his number. <laughs> yeah. No, no, he was fantastic. It all started with Body Double. One of my favorites of yours. I think another underappreciated gem, like Casualties of War, that not too many people talk about. But I was looking for parking one day and pulled into that shopping center and said, oh, my God, is this the shopping center from Body Double? And, <laughs> and the, uh, the kid, the valet kid was like, you know, we hear that a lot. So, yeah. 
Uh, so Paul Hirsch is not so hot on Blowout, which is befuddling to us because we love Blowout so much. What are your thoughts on, on Blowout? Because I know it had some changes while it was being made. Are you happy with it? Oh, yeah, I'm very happy with it. I don't quite understand what Paul is bothered by. Uh, but Paul, as you know, is very bright and very opinionated. Yes. <laughs> I'm the status opinions, and they're always good to hear. But no, I, I, I really, really liked Blowout. It really was the movie I wanted to make. Uh, and I had the resources to do it. Would you say that about most of your movies? No, I wouldn't. <laughs> Which, how, so is it not that many that you felt like you had the resources for? No, no. I, the question I, that I was asking was, was it the movie you set out to make? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. So how many of the movies you made were what you set out to make? Oh, that's a very difficult question. I'm I'm pretty satisfied with most of them, except for simples like uh, examples like Mission to Mars, where I couldn't make the ending work because I didn't have a, enough power to get uh, enough special effects to make it, you know, really moving. And Domino. Well, Domino is a whole other story. I liked Domino, but well, thank you. Yeah. You know, it's underappreciated. I, I think so, too. It's got a great score. There's some really fun sequences, I thought. But I know that you had a you were never able to finish that one, basically, right? Well, n- not really. It's just that, as I have said many times, I was there 100 days and shot 30. So I just, you know, the money kept on falling out. And I kept on being left in hotel suites waiting for the money to come in. And after waiting a couple of weeks and nothing happening, I said, that's it, guys, I'm going home. And my assistant director, Eric Schwab, went to Sicily where they got some more money to shoot uh, the sequence uh, where they, the exterior of the bullring where they drive up and then go into the adjacent building. Mm-hmm. And then I put, and he, you know, I laid it out towards Eric as a fantastic director and he just you know did exactly as I set out and I, and I had to fight with the company a lot with uh, you know getting people paid the question was did you get paid uh, and I had a lot of loyal people working for me and I'd always ask them did they pay you and a lot of times they hadn't and it was a struggle right to the end and then when it was finished you know, was, some festivals wanted to show it. And I said, no, I'm not going to support this. You've given me such a terrible time. So that was a sort of a sad ending. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Paul told us about another um, incomplete De Palma masterwork, which was uh, you videotaping his wedding. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's true. <laughs> I shot 10 reels, nine of which were black. Somehow I left the, you know, those cameras have a kind of variable shutter, and uh, which meant that the first nine reels were underexposed, so it was completely black. And then the final reel I got. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's still married, so I think you know whatever you did, uh, it worked well. I know we are we're we are long. is there anything that you and Susan can tease about this next book? I don't want to get you in trouble, obviously. Susan will be the, the arbiter of, of this, but... Why don't you describe Carrie to me? Uh, 
We took Emile Zola's novel, Therese Rakan, and we put a modern American hex on it. Okay. In our version, it's not Therese, but it's Terry in Toledo. (laughs) And it has a lot of intrigue and De Palma special effects. Okay. Okay. It's also, you're, you're playing the, they're making the movie of Terry. So the triangle that exists in Therese Rattan is reflected in the actors and director that are making the movie. Okay. Don't miss it. <laughs> Coming to your local bookstall. Okay. Well, we hope that we can talk to you when that comes out or whatever else you want to talk about. We are always available. Um, and this was such a huge thrill. Seriously, we've been trying to do this for like, I think since the book came out in hardcover. So... It's been amazing, and we we love the book. We love all of your work, obviously, Brian. So this was this was really a, a, a huge thrill. So thank you so much for taking the time. You know, okay. if, if when you listen to your tape, you need anything else, let us know. I mean, yes, I'm going to talk to you, and you guys clearly know what you're doing. And if you need any, you know, comment on something from Brian about any movie, honey, it's about, time to leave. Oh, shut up. <laughs> Brian is done with us. Susan, we'll talk more. But yes, okay, thank you. No, I bet if you need anything from him, let me know. All right. Thank you thank guys you so, so much. much. This thank is you. amazing. Thank you. Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, is produced by Charles Hood. That's me and Drew Taylor. Our supervising producer is Abby Smith. This episode was edited by Luke Burson with music by Kevin Blumenfeld. The interview is a production of Bravo Echo 11 LLC, and the podcast is a production of Paramount Pictures. All rights are reserved. This message will self-destruct in five seconds.